Welcome to episode 184 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our guest interview, uh, which we'll record tomorrow, is with Martin Mikos, who's the CEO of Hacker One, talking about bug bounties, and especially bug bounties as applied to government. Uh, but for today's news roundup, I'm pleased to say uh, we're joined uh, 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 by our ringer, Shane Harris, who uh, also uh, contributed, uh, really it should be called the Shane Roundup, as far as I can tell, Shane. Uh, <laughs> nice welcome. Too. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, a, a uh, national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and we'll cover some of the stories that he um, broke this uh, uh, this week. Uh, also by Alan Cohn, formerly Assistant Secretary for Strategy at DHS, now of Council at Steptoe. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, sir. And Brian Egan, uh, a partner in our international regulation and compliance practice, uh, who is former uh, legal advisor at the State Department and National Security Council uh, as well. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Okay, let's jump in. So, uh, uh, Shane, one of the stories that you reported, uh, uh, let me see if I get this right. Um, the Russians were using Kaspersky software to hack the world to find NSA product. The Israelis hacked Kaspersky to discover this and tell NSA, which then did its own testing. And then Kaspersky caught the Israelis and wrote a report about it. Is that uh, what happened all in... 2015. Yeah, that's all, that's about right. You've got it, which I mean sounds highly improbable when you spell it out that way. And yet we live in improbable times, I guess. Um, yeah, this is. I mean, it's a fascinating story. We kind of broke it in two pieces. The first story that we reported was uh, that an NSA contractor had, for reasons that still I, I think escape people, uh, removed highly classified information from his. Oh workplace. no, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me at all. This doesn't surprise me all, all the time. The time. Well, we know <laughs> sometimes it's and, and, for and sure. we would, you know, in ni- in the nineties, we'd catch people with with all this stuff packed right out of the way because they were. It was the only way they could do their job at home, and they. So, so, the so, so this is really just ambitious people really trying to get ahead of work. Or uh, OCD, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they uh, they did it. It was It's rarely with evil intent. Right. Uh, and that seems to be the case here. Yeah. The investigators don't think there was any evil intent, but it was just probably a fairly bad call by this person who then takes it home, and then the real uh, sin, I guess, is he puts it on a home computer that is loaded with Kaspersky antivirus software. <laughs> And what the investigation determined was that that software, doing what antivirus software does, which is to scan your machine and check your files and see what's there and find the bad stuff and flag that and get it off, um, notices that there is information on his machine that may be uh, highly interesting to the Russian intelligence services. Uh, And so Kaspersky, I, I kind of think of it as sort of acting like a digital scout that goes out and has reported back that there's interesting stuff on this machine. Now, the sequence of events that then comes from when it reports back to who tells whom and who is there to receive it, that we still don't fully understand. Um, but so there's a, there's a scenario in which Kaspersky software, doing what we want software to do, antivirus software to do, spots actual code that it knows to be malware and reports, hey, here's a, an interesting piece of malware, because there is a competition to find malware first mm-hmm. and to uh, announce the signatures. Uh, but that is not how this ends up. Uh, right. <clears throat> what we also then subsequently find is that the Israelis hack into the Kaspersky networks, uh, and what they find, and what U.S. officials later determine that they agree with, is that 
the software has been modified not just to look for malware signatures, but to look for words like top secret um, and very sort of broad designations that you would expect to find on any number of classified government documents. So you know what this reminds me of a little is uh, LimeWire and Napster. When you could do that, you could you could search for the Beatles or uh, what have you, uh, I, and you were searching everybody's hard right, drive. Right. But you, if, if people configured it wrong, you could also search for Form 1040 mm-hmm. and get their uh, uh, tax returns. Uh, and this is basically a slightly more sophisticated version of what you could do with LimeWire. Yeah, I think that's right. And in, in, in what, in what's sort of fascinating slash deeply troubling about all of that in the end is that if the Russian government is using Kaspersky to do that and is fanning out and searching all kinds of computers, uh, impossible, you know, computers within, let's say, 40 or 50 miles of Fort Meade, Maryland, mm-hmm. you've got a pretty sophisticated, well, pretty comprehensive, let's say, tool for espionage. I don't know how sophisticated it might be. You might be pulling in a lot of other stuff. That's not what you want, but so me, uh, it's certainly a great you, first tool. Yeah. Let me ask you one question that uh, in this Hall of Mirrors has to be asked. Uh, this is the Israelis blaming the Russians and Kaspersky for something um, and trying to get the United States mad at Kaspersky. Um, how much independent validation did the U.S. government do of this report? What we're told is that <clears throat> there were experiments that were done on the U.S. side, uh, multiple experiments, to actually see if Kaspersky was doing the uh, malign thing that the Israelis discovered that it was, and the U.S. officials determined that it was. Okay, so honey documents. Yeah, yeah, controlled experiments, exactly, and essentially setting up computers that, um, you know, were running Kaspersky but didn't have anything uh, of great value on it to see if it actually triggered a sequence that looked like the Russians using Kaspersky to spy on your computer, and that's what officials determined was happening. And what's also, you know, fascinating about this, too, is that you know, these suspicions have been around for a long time in the intelligence community. Yeah, but this is right? just, this is just, this is just red-handed. Right. This is, this is red-handed. But there's also this building question at this time about, you know, what do you do about it? And what we've subsequently been reporting, and we'll do some more on this soon, I hope, is that, uh, you know, security officials, particularly at Homeland Security, are looking at this like, okay, well, what do we, do we have enough body of evidence? There was a debate we understand internally about do we have enough evidence about this to do something uh, as public as essentially saying no more Kaspersky products on government systems. And, of course, in September, that's what the Homeland Security Department did. So I and think then your they, were pushed a little. They, they were pushed a little by the Intelligence Committee asking, like, five uh, uh, security agency heads, right. would you Including use the director it? the director of the NSA, <laughs> would you use it? And they all said, no, thanks. Uh, so, you know, you've got sort of this... I think, you know, behind the scenes, this sort of, you know, crescendo, right, of, right. of evidence and concern, and it finally culminates in DHS coming out and saying, that's it, this, you know, no more for this product. And <clears throat> I should note at the same time, the DHS came out and publicly banned it. About four days before that, Best Buy, the big, big box retailer, said that it was no longer going to offer this either. They were first. Either. About four days before. Okay. Um, so, and what we've subsequently been hearing is that there was, Word going out, particularly through that channels like the ISACs and other sort of established yeah. mechanisms to industry, saying the U.S. government has really profound concerns about this product, and maybe you should think about it too. Uh, so it, it's really an amazing story of, and also the, the backstory to that too. It makes you wonder why did it take you know more than two years almost from the point of which the Israelis apparently get into where there's a public pronouncement, and you know maybe one answer for that would be. 
the government is not going to just sort of capriciously and cavalierly come out and say something without really good evidence to back it so up. So how uh, how much do you know about the internal process? And uh, surely somebody is unhappy about the two years. Uh, yeah. I'm guessing it's NSA and the CIA who feel like, uh, well, why did we? Why did it take two years? Uh, with DHS and maybe NSC saying, well, we have to have proof, we have to have a process, we have to make a determination. Uh, um, a, is that your sense of how that played yeah, out? Yeah, we're still learning about this, but that, broadly speaking, seems to be kind of where some of the dynamic was. But I, And I can't say whether everybody at DHS was on one side versus another wanted to say was on one side or another, but <clears throat> if the department obviously was going to come out and make the directive that it did, it was going to need really solid information to back that up. Because if I mean, Kaspersky is allowed to you know, sort of protest this, and I don't know that we will then show Eugene Kaspersky the information that we have, um, but I know from talking to people you know, in the intelligence community, this was something that was of great concern. Now, I don't know that they would all say, and the way to do this is to publicly ban the software, but... But I mean, remember that in uh, in 2015 there weren't there wasn't a process of binding operational directives that the Secretary of Homeland mm. Security could issue. There wasn't even a recognition, a generally accepted recognition, that the word of the Secretary of Homeland Security really even mattered that much in the federal community. The other thing, so you're that, saying this is this is DHS not letting a crisis go to waste. Yeah, yeah you one, one should always capitalize on on the opportunities that a crisis gives you. But the other point is. It's still very much an open question about how much the U.S. government and the, and Homeland Security in particular should interject itself into a, the private marketplace outside of defined channels like government procurement uh, and other types of legislatively created regula- with a regulatory framework way that the government speaks because, of course, um, while I, I don't think there's that a is lot so of DHS. well, but I don't think there's a lot of dispute about the fact that DHS should have done this, you know, now. And you know, I think it's pro- it's very legitimate to say that DHS should have done this a while ago. But there's all sorts of other things that are out there, from parties in CFIUS cases to uh, individuals in you know in in security clearance processes or. Uh, trusted traveler systems where uh, you can make a pretty compelling argument that the government should speak. Yeah. But, but they there, often there don't. Isn't, they often don't, and there are reasons why the government may not, appro- may, it might not, may not be appropriate for the government to speak. Let me way. ask, let me ask Brian, because it does seem to me that if, if, if the evidence is as uh, ironclad as the leaks suggest, uh, then um, couldn't the government, couldn't Treasury uh, and the President use the sanctions program and say, there's been an act of espionage on our territory against our citizens uh, searching for top secret documents. We're going to impose sanctions on the company that enabled it, i.e. Kaspersky. We're not going to let them sell their product in the United States. Yeah, I think the, the president has broad authority under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA, to do uh, many things economically in response to what he thinks is a national emergency. I think something like this could rise to the level of a national emergency. We already have cyber sanctions in place. But I think one of the things that Shane said earlier is important to keep in mind, which is these rumors have been going on for many, many years. And I think 
the fact that the evidence may have come to light in 2015, I don't think it's all that surprising that it would have taken our government some additional period of time to figure out exactly what to do. Now, your idea, Stuart, is one that the government may well be considering now. You know. Yeah. What, what about it, Shane? I think we can uh, uh, use the OFAC process here. No, I don't know about that. I mean, it's a little bit out of my domain, but I, I will just say just kind of echoing what Alan and Brian said in, in reporting that we've been doing since, <clears throat> we it, it was one former U.S. official put it to us, is, look, this is a legitimate company with an American presence. I mean, they have, you know, a storefront here, if you want to think <laughs> of it. And what kind of precedent would you be setting if you suddenly started targeting them? Um, so the question of then sanctions kind of flows out of that. But there was a real... I think concern about this because this was not just some foreign company, you know, selling into our market uh, in, in weird channels. This was they were selling it at Best Buy. They have an American. Presence. And I think there is a there is a difference between the government issuing a binding operational directive saying the government shall not use this, or even the government, even if you're not going to sanction Kaspersky, sanction those elements of the Russian government that were doing this and say the means they were doing it. It's through Kaspersky software and put that in the documentation that goes out. There is a material difference between doing that and simply having people go out and say no one should buy Kaspersky software. So I can't help observing, as I always do, that there's some phony baloney privacy problem at the heart of this because I'm willing to bet that the NSA and CIA felt Oh, Kaspersky has a U.S. subsidiary. We can't target them. They're Americans. I And that that probably slowed down some of the uh, uh, intelligence gathering on what Kaspersky might or might not be doing. That, that, that well could be. I mean, obviously, we were the beneficiaries of the Israeli operation, and, you know, we don't know completely what they showed, but I imagine it was pretty compelling. Stuff. Apparently, they did not say, oh, well, I'm sorry, it's an American <laughs> company. We can't target it. Well, what I also find <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> well, what's also fascinating in this, is too, is that Kaspersky, you know, puts out a paper in June of 2015 in great detail documenting this penetration by what it called the Dooku 2.0 malware, which is, like, I mean, you read it and it all but says we think it's Israel. Yes. I mean, they just, like, rock you right over to that conclusion. That was fascinating, too. And, you know, of course, Kaspersky has published papers uh, on a group called, known as the Equation Group, which many people believe is NSA. NSA, yeah. Right. And so here's a company, too, that has had no qualms about coming out publicly and, you know, showing the work of others, including when it's against its own networks, which... I would imagine most antivirus companies would probably be a little hesitant to say, yeah, we got hacked by a really sophisticated piece of malware, and here's how they did it. But yes. I also think, though, Stuart, and, and not to let an opportunity, I know you don't want to let an opportunity to, to flog the privacy advocates go by, <laughs> but I was thinking more of the contract clause than the privacy yes. provisions in this particular case. All right. So um, the Germans, however, apparently not, not persuaded. They have said, oh, we haven't seen any evidence, so uh, uh, we're going to keep uh, relying heavily on Kaspersky. I, thought, I suspect that's about a going to last a week and a half. Yeah. Uh, that seemed like an invitation to show us the evidence, yes. you know, which I imagine that if they asked politely, we would. <laughs> yeah, uh, slowly. <laughs> and Interpol has uh, uh, signed up to uh, uh, an information sharing deal with Kaspersky, but also probably, and they may stick with it because they, you know, they do business with uh, every uh, criminal um, enforcement uh, agency on the planet, and they'll probably have to continue to do that. Right. I should say, too, I mean, this is a product that many very highly regarded security experts say is a very good product. 
I mean, yes. as antivirus goes, it gets really high marks. I mean, it, it works very effectively. It's just this, you know, this question of what are its allegiances or how is it being compelled by the Russian government that's the problem. It's not the product itself. People feel is quite sound and quite good. Yeah, and the Interpol question is a little bit different, only because Interpol has been very open about. Look, their president is is Chinese. Uh, you know, Kaspersky is not just a you know an information sharing partner, but you know there are Russian Kaspersky and the, and others are part of the the governance process at the uh, Interpol Global Center for Innovation in Singapore. I mean, this is a different kind of consideration of look if we're going to have a global law enforcement alliance of sorts, we're going to need to engage with the law enforcement agencies and the private sector entities around the world, even though it comes with challenges like this. Okay, so let's shift our uh, uh, focus all the way across the globe to North Korea. Uh, and it looks like North Korea has had some remarkable achievements in hacking South Korea and the United States. Yeah, there's, there were a number of stories in the past week. One is uh, that we wrote about in the journal uh, is North Korea stealing secret U.S. war plans from computers in South Korea, because uh, of course you know some of our information would be on allied systems. Um, there too, apparently, an antivirus program. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really, this is, this is a bad week for antivirus. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Uh, a, little, a little bit different in this case in that it looks like that was the mechanism by which it spread, but there was this system apparently that while it was undergoing maintenance, uh, a South Korean intranet system had a connection going out to the internet. It reminds as, me, as one does, right, to download, to well, update, et There may be moments right? where you sort of yeah. open the portal and you let people through. It reminds me, though, like in those movies like Hot Zone where people are suiting up and yep. the, you know, the suits <laughs> when they're going into an area with a virus. And if you get the one tear, they all start freaking out. <laughs> I guess this is sort of the one tear that came through. Um, but, you know, in, in the Times has a great story uh, this morning on North Korea becoming this more formidable cyber force. Uh, which is something I've been fascinated by for a number of years. I mean, this is we, we think of the North Koreans as being sort of hapless and, uh, I think as the Times put it, kind of medieval, um, yet they have a apparently functioning nuclear weapons program and now a fairly robust cyber program that's into all kinds of things, from hacking uh, South Korea to going after Sony to stealing uh, like a, upwards of a billion dollars a year from banks. So, yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. I mean, they still have to work on their spelling, apparently. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get that a down. billion dollars a year. That, that was a $900 million mistake, wasn't it? That foundation is not spelled right. with an A. Right, right. right. Uh, Seventh grade spelling lists yeah. uh, come in handy every once in a while. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, but uh, there's no doubt they are good, uh, and as you'd expect, I, I keep saying this that uh, if you if you run an authoritarian regime where basically people will do anything for food, and you say I'll give your kid food if he's smart enough to hack uh, the United States, people will send their kids to the. Uh, special schools, yeah. and uh, uh, now they're being moved out of North Korea to places that have better internet connections. Uh, uh, I am kind of surprised that we haven't started picking them up in places like Malaysia, where you'd think that they could be picked up. Right, or apparently India, where I guess the yes. Times reported that 20% of these attacks are originating from. You know, one thing that I thought was fascinating, too, and would like to see more fleshed out is, you know, some North Korea watchers, I'm thinking of Steph Haggard in particular, have talked about whether or not the country basically has a current accounts deficit, right, and that this could be something that sort of starts to collapse the South, the North Korean economy, and these new sanctions that are being put in place are going to cut them off from a significant portion of 
uh, of, of their economic gain. If they're stealing a billion dollars a year, right, and they're only right. selling three billion dollars right. a right. year, this would also help, this would help to explain why we don't see them collapsing, maybe in a way that they should. When you know, and this is this is you know, yep. Steph talks about this at some length. It's very hard to get a sense of what the economy of North Korea does. It looks like you have to get it from reflections in other countries' reports. But as I was listening to a talk he gave recently, uh, uh, <clears throat> thinking you know like that, that the country could just collapse because of you know basically a cash shortage. It occurred to me like, huh, I wonder if they're just robbing banks. And they are. It turns out they are. And I'm sure, you know, they, uh, they were behind, we think, the, uh, uh, the failed, um, uh, not Petcha, uh, uh, ransomware, mm-hmm. uh, which many people think escaped early, mm-hmm. uh, and hadn't been fully, um, Designed to produce funds, uh, uh, so we're going to see more from them uh, uh, for sure. Because uh, you know, I, it has been my observation. One of my observations about our norms exercises is that the United States no sooner announces a proposed international norm for restricting cyber warfare than the North Koreans use it as a, a shopping list for things they ought to be doing because it obviously scares us. Uh, uh, all right, um, back to Russia. Twitter's taking uh, abuse, one, for not having done much in the way of um, investigating uh, uh, the uh, uh, Russians' use of Twitter. Uh, and it turns out the reason, you know, it's privacy. The, uh, the Russians uh, deleted their accounts, as, as one would expect. Uh, and uh, Twitter's privacy policy is if you delete your account, by God, Twitter's going to delete everything. And if law enforcement shows up the next week, ain't nothing there. Uh, and they must have thought that was a brave and uh, a bold uh, policy. It is not looking so good when they stand in front of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee uh, and take abuse for not producing any evidence of what was going on because they ain't got any. And somehow... Privacy is not selling this as, as, as an excuse, but uh, uh, you know, Baker's rule on this is uh, uh, privacy always ends up protecting the powerful, uh, and in this case, it's protecting Vladimir Putin and well, Twitter, which doesn't have to have any accountability for its uh, uh, for what it did in the election. Um, Deputy AG uh, calling out Silicon Valley over encryption; uh, he wants responsible encryption. Uh, which Silicon Valley calls backdoor encryption. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, this is a long kind of uh, uh, list, laundry list of speech, as a laundry list of the things he wants from technology. Uh, uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, it was an interesting. It was an interesting speech at the Naval Academy. Um, Rudenstein goes through a lot of the uh, kind of the ills, actual and, and perceived. Uh, that technology uh, uh, lets loose on law enforcement. And uh, so he starts with kind of ransomware and DNS attacks and the dark web. Um, but he really, he, he, as you said, he saves his kind of punch for encryption and for this idea of responsible encryption, which to his mind doesn't need to take any specific form, but would include, you know, access with judicial authorization uh, and he points to examples like central management of security keys and operating system updates and scanning of content for advertising purposes, um, simulcasting messages and key recovery right. as examples 
of um, so I, the it's ways clear that, you do that. that the, the Department of Justice, both uh, in the last administration and this, is determined not to. They think it's a, there's a trap in suggesting a particular technology because then everybody starts shooting at that and showing flaws and and then you get headlines as we got with the clipper chip that uh, you know flaws have been found it's discredited we can all quit the other trap that that you, I think that that Rosenstein and the justice department have to be wary of is the trap they walked into in the apple case which is they came in with a very great sense of you know the the technology companies have their arguments and we have the truth Mm-hmm. And they got battered around for that. And there's a, you know, there. Are, well, nobody distorts reality like Apple distorts reality. Well, <laughs> but the, but the point is that you know when you make arguments about, uh, you know, the 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 preeminent constitutional, um, uh, you know, foundation for federal law enforcement, when in fact there is no such thing. Um, you know, when you make a uh, uh, when you make statements about uh, the fact that there isn't you know, a constitutional right to sell warrant-proof encryption when, of course, the Bill of Rights is all about restraints on government, right. not restraints on private industry. You know, and the fact that that our Constitution does really enshrine that that the rights that are enumerated in the in the Bill of Rights and the preeminence of, of the concepts of, of the protection of general health and welfare and national defense, these are these are co-equal uh, these are co-equal interests in the in the Constitution, and so th- I think Rosenstein makes a really important argument, and I think the most important thing he says in here is that we have to keep debating this because we are not in a place where anybody feels comfortable. Well, but, he can but guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> but the assertions may walk the Justice Department back into the same place that they were. In oh, I think they're they're looking for the right case, uh, and. Uh, uh, I'm sure they will keep looking until they find a case where they think that uh, the public is going to be on their side and not on Silicon Valley's. And, I'm, and meanwhile, Silicon Valley is bringing all its engineers to bear so that they can genuinely say, as you know, Apple said but was lying, um, we can't do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they are they're 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 basically cashing that check now. They they are going to say we can't do it, and it's going to be true by the time the, the next case comes up. Yeah, and it's it is a it is an ongoing you know uh, back and forth as it is with any type of technology, as it is with any type of law enforcement imperative between. Kind of the policy imperatives, the operational imperatives of how does this thing work? How do customers want it to work? How does law enforcement want it to work? And the technical pieces: how how advanced can the technology get? How sophi- technically sophisticated can the government get? And the government with the with its agents? And then how sophisticated do malicious actors get? And what impact does that have both on industry and individuals as well as law enforcement imperatives? Did you guys see any daylight between uh, the Deputy Attorney General's remarks and what Rob Joyce said last week about encryption? And he was talking about his support for strong encryption. I think you could probably read that to be consistent with what uh, Rosenstein was saying. But yeah, I, I, that's, you know, the, the Justice Department will always say we are all for strong encryption. We believe in privacy. We believe in security. Uh, we just think it, we, the only time it should yield is when we have a warrant that says there's probable cause to believe this encryption is being used for the commission of a crime. 
Ryan, you don't mean that the Department of Justice is using a good cop, bad cop approach, <laughs> <laughs> And Rosenstein does say, you know, you know uh, encryption is the foundational element of data security and authentication. It's essential to the growth and flourishing of the digital economy. Uh, and in law enforcement, we have no desire to undermine it. So there is a, a nod towards that argument mm-hmm. before the kind of assault on the, on the malfeasance <laughs> of the technology. But if you're looking for straws in the wind about whether there's ever going to be a legislative move, because I don't think Rosenstein is, is actually quite asking for that, but that is a logical thing to be asking for. Uh, the debate over 702 is not going the way the FBI and the Justice Department and the, and the intelligence community would like, or the, really the administration as a whole. As a whole. Uh, we've got a bill that came out of the House Judiciary Committee that is taking flack as much for uh, not going far enough as for going too far in cutting back on what people can do with 702. And, and so uh, it looks as though there's going to be a real convulsive debate uh, in Congress about uh, questions like unmasking and uh, about uh, uh, collection and the FBI's desire, uh, as they would put it, not to rebuild the wall between law enforcement uh, and uh, intelligence uh, searches. And this is, I just have to say, as a reporter covering this and having geared up to cover this debate, knowing that this sunset was coming, it is truly one of the more bizarre turns of events that you're going to, the possibility of having the House Freedom Caucus and the ACLU joining hand in hand (laughs) over 702 and being propelled by this unmasking issue, which appears to not really have anything to do with it. So I I first (laughs) such a crazy. Can I I say, uh, uh, Shane, that the press has had a delighted um, kind of uh, uh, befuddlement at the idea that uh, left and right would gather around this issue. And yet left and right have been gathering around this issue since at least 1990. That's true. That's true. But like lately, <laughs> this is not something we're used to seeing. But, no, I, but, but you raise a great point here, which is that, I mean, there are, I mean, people in the Freedom Caucus and, and folks in the ACLU, there are, there is a common interest around this, the, the, these issues, and actually, if you if you believe in the robust debate around surveillance, right, you welcome this because you want it to be not just a narrow debate about unmasking or a narrow debate about the FBI's use of 702 data. There's a sort of foundational debate that you want to go back to that we had in 2007 about whether we even want a law as broad as 702. And so, it seems like that's that's kind of what the system and was working at its best, right, should do is encompass all of these views and have a really robust debate around it. So you, you, the unmasking thing, you're quite right. It has nothing to do with 702 in the sense that 702 doesn't set masking standards. But nothing sets masking standards except some uh, uh, internal policies of the administration that, that have been around for really, I, I don't think it, they've changed since I was there 20-plus uh, years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and so, um, and, and there is a, the reason it, has some legs is it's a Republican civil liberties issue because they believe that the Obama administration played fast and loose with the unmasking rules in order to carry out a kind of uh, operation, an intelligence operation against the transition team that was taking their place and whom they were profoundly uh, out of step with. Yeah, and, 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 and it's been noted before but there, if that in fact happened as, as, as we think described, there was a profound violation of the civil liberties of people like Mike Flynn 
I mean, to have not, I mean, the unma- not in the unmasking necessarily. I mean, there's nothing to suggest that the unmasking of those names uh, in and of itself was improper. Uh, but then the leaking of those things. But it, but it, but it, facil- it was clearly the unmasking occurred in this heightened partisan sure. uh, atmosphere uh, where you could justify it uh, on intelligence understanding grounds, and it had it was as the church lady would have said, remarkably convenient. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and then the leaking, of course. Uh, was only worth doing if you already knew who was on the other end of that uh, conversation. Right. So yeah, I can I can see it, it. It clearly it's probably the worst abuse of civil liberties in the last ten years um, that involves intelligence collection. Uh, and the uh, the leaking of, of uh, uh, Flynn's conversation uh, for what was probably partisan purposes, uh, and so I, I I have some sympathy for the people who want to address it and are seizing on this as an opportunity to do that. Well, there's also I mean and this is again not justifying potentially criminal behavior, but I think also the people who were potentially engaged in that would have also thought it's more than a partisan issue. It's we are worried that the incoming national security advisor is somehow in weird cahoots with the Russian government. Yes. You know, to sell our country up the river. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that's true, but I think probably that the motivation for some people to do that was driven maybe arguably by a partisan impulse, but also in the, in the, against the backdrop of this extraordinary transition period where people in the national security community were really afraid that the Russian government just intervened in the U.S. election and coordinated with the president-elect to get him elected. Yeah. I just want to know for the record that Stuart Baker just defended the privacy interests of Mike Flynn. Yes. Uh, so the, uh, the only privacy interests he's defended in my time appearing on these podcasts. <laughs> it's probably true. Uh, well, I'll, I'll try to make sure that never happens again. Uh, uh, we have a new uh, secretary nominee for uh, DHS, uh, Kirsten uh, Nielsen, uh, who is also the first alumna of uh, uh, DHS to become secretary uh, and uh, the first cybersecurity expert to, to become secretary. So big deal, right? Yeah, very big deal. Uh, known commodity among the, the homeland security space, although not as widely known uh, in the broader uh, community, a former uh, TSA official uh, in the Bush administration and then a White House uh, Homeland Security Council senior uh, official. Uh, and then, of course, White House Chief of Staff, or sorry, DHS Chief of Staff, uh, before following uh, John Kelly to the White House. Uh, but yes, deep expertise in cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection and resilience and disaster preparedness and response in transportation security, really not the disciplines that a lot of the other secretaries have come to the department with, although they have all both had to become experts in them and recognized uh, the need for them. Um, so this will be, this is going to be a very, um, it's a, it'll be a watershed moment, uh, if she is confirmed because it will really be, yeah. uh, you know, the, the maturing of this enterprise to say that one of our own, uh, can become secretary. Of course, the, um, the critiques are out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and some of the initial critiques are interesting. Um, the lack of immigration experience. And of course, oh, it is I, so. I think that's a, that's that's the best possible yeah. <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> but it, it just illustrates how difficult it is to have expertise in all of the disciplines right. that the Department of Homeland Security is expected to address. Uh, and then the second is uh, Hurricane Katrina and the fact that her directorate at the White House and she specifically have been called out in some of the 
reports, some of the better and some of the not as good reports um, that that came out. Uh, but you know, pointing a finger at her for a variety of things, even though she was a, I mean, she was a, a, a special assistant and senior director on the White House. I HSC remember staff. those reports, and it was like you were all standing around trying to figure out what what happened, and somebody would just cannonball into the mud puddle in the hopes that, that they got everybody covered with dirt. I, 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 so the fact that somebody had criticism in those reports of her is well, neither surprising nor uh, probative. And I think, um, you know, I think anybody who was involved at that time, you know, un- accepts that there was dirt going everywhere and that there was, you know, responsibility everywhere. But I think that it's important to note that her her role was... Not an operational one. Right. Um, she had a staff of five people whose job it was to, you know, to, to try to funnel an enormous amount of information, some of it right, some of it wrong, most of it unclear and murky, um, to try to make sense of a, of a situation that, that everybody struggled to make sense of. So, but it, but interesting that those are the two lines that seem to be, you know, the ones that, uh, that, that those who wish to either oppose her or, you know, try to uh, derail the nomination for other reasons seem to be choosing. So. so to take this back to straight law, there is now a lawsuit arising out of uh, the French terror attacks claiming that Twitter and Google uh, and uh, Facebook uh, uh, provided material assistance to terrorism and are liable and, you know, when I looked at that lawsuit, said uh, Brian, I kind of was surprised. Apparently, um, Google uh, in YouTube was showing ads next to these ISIS uh, uh, videos and then sharing, according to the complaint, sharing the revenue with ISIS. Uh, uh, that They've got a big problem if that's true. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting case. So, so this is one of a number of cases that have been filed recently under this law, the Anti-Terrorism Act, which, as you said, allows for civil causes of action uh, when an American is harmed in a terrorist incident overseas. Uh, a number of these cases have not been successful so far, and the plaintiffs in this particular case are really focusing on the theory that uh, Facebook, Google, uh, and Twitter profited from uh, the ISIS's use of their platforms. And in very graphic detail in the complaint, as you said, including pictures, uh, oh, screenshots, and other things, uh, trying to make the point that this is not just providing a platform for speaking, but in fact these companies made money uh, off of uh, ISIS's use of their platforms. Um, so it will be interesting to see how this case goes. The other cases have failed under the what some people call the Good Samaritan provision of the Communications Decency Act, which provides a safe harbor. Uh, clearly the plaintiffs in this case are trying to get around that theory of immunity. Wow. Okay, well, I, it, it will be interesting because I think uh, – um, Maintaining the immunity in the long haul is going to be very hard. It's already basically gone in Europe and a lot of other places, and uh, it's going to be under more and more pressure in the U.S. Uh, um, as they demonstrate that they can, if they put enough resources into it, to uh, address some of these problems. Uh, um, all right, two last uh, things, and then we will finish up uh, um, the... Um, there's, uh, there's been a um, development. Pornhub says it has developed facial recognition software so that you can characterize all of the uh, uh, the videos there. I, uh, you know, 
I, I just cannot help asking, if they're that good, why did they stop at facial recognition? But oh, I, uh, oh, <laughs> all right. This uh, is where historically uh, technological innovation does come exactly. from, by the way, is the pornography <laughs> industry. Yes, so, okay. Uh, and I, Apple, God bless them, uh, has discovered a really good password hint. So you, you write down your password, and then they say, what's a, what's a hint? And uh, <laughs> Apple, uh, when they were uh, encrypting files, or at least uh, um, uh, folders, uh, said, we'll give you a password hint, and it will be the password you've chosen for your, for your bucket. Uh, I, I, they did fix it pretty quickly when it was pointed out, but uh, uh, it does show that um, uh, Apple, despite its uh, certainty that it knows how to do security better than anybody, doesn't always get it right. Well, there you go. There's your responsible encryption. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, or uh, uh, That's right. When you, if you need to decrypt this, you just go to the, the hint section, and the password will be there waiting for you. That's what could be more responsible. All right. Uh, thanks to Shane. Thanks to Alan. Thanks to Brian. Uh, this has been episode 184 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Endless, uh, though it may be. It's been brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, if you've got an, a guest uh, interview, uh, uh, we will give you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, which I see, Shane, you have sitting right uh, beside you. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, is that's, that is yours now. How about that? Yes. Uh, and, uh, I didn't even have to suggest a guest. <laughs> you are the guest. Uh, um, okay, coming up, we're going to have Martin Mikos of Hacker One, Michael Sulmeyer of the Belfer Center, Cybersecurity Project, Chris Painter, the former uh, State Department uh, cyber diplomat, among other guests. And then on November 7, uh, come here in the evening for our special on election cybersecurity at DuPont Circle. Uh, uh, please register on the events page at stepto.com. And we hope you'll join us for all of those episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 